Well, to give you all a brief reminder of the trend of thought being expressed by Paul here in chapter 2 of Philippians, Paul had just admonished the Philippians to live lives worthy of the gospel of Christ. And that admonition followed Paul's report about his own circumstances as a prisoner in Rome. Paul's joyful endurance of his imprisonment served to advance the gospel in keeping with God's sovereign plan. Thus, Paul implored the Philippians to be like him, fearlessly proclaiming and defending the gospel. Now, Christian unity was to be a central part of that endeavor to strive for the gospel. The Philippians were to have, as the basis for their unity, a common spirit and mind, a common attitude which held that the gospel and the glorification of God was of utmost importance in life. They were also to have a common belief in the essential doctrines of the faith to which they were called, and to stand firm on those doctrines. Well now, in chapter 2, Paul expands on his command for the Philippians to be united. What we will see is that if the Philippians were to be genuinely united to one another, they would need to exhibit Christ-like humility. And so Paul presents the humility of Christ as the supreme example to which they were to look. So here is the point of the message this morning. Be humble like Christ. It is a simple thing to say, but comparatively difficult to do if we understand what is being asked of us, we who are sinners. Now to help us grasp this idea, we're going to examine the text under three main headings. The first will be the structure of Paul's admonition. The second will be the necessity of humility in Christian unity. And the third will be Jesus as the prime example of humility. So, to the first heading, the structure of Paul's admonition. He says, so if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord, and of one mind. In this admonition to unity, there are ifs and there are thens. Ifs and thens. What do I mean by that? Well, for example, if the weather is good tomorrow, then I will go to the park. Or if I get hungry while I'm out, then I will eat the snack that I brought. You see, the ifs set the conditions for what should happen as a result. So let's look at the... Let's look for the ifs and the thens in Paul's admonition. If there is any encouragement in Christ. If any comfort from love. If any participation in the Spirit. If any affection and sympathy. Then complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. You see, the if-then structure of Paul's admonition is significant because it tells us that if you are a believer in Christ, then the result of that belief is that you will live in a certain way and exhibit certain characteristics. So let's go through each one of these if statements because I want to show you that Paul's if statements 
are actually all the things that will be true about you if you are trusting in Jesus. And if these things are true, and you do believe in Jesus, then Paul lays out how you are to conduct yourself. So the first if, if there's any encouragement in Christ, or translated another way, if there's any consolation in Christ. Paul is speaking about the encouragement that it is to the believer to know that he or she is united to Christ. The peace of mind of knowing that your sins have been forgiven. That you are safe in the hands of God and that no one or no thing can ever pluck you out of it. Knowing that you share in the rich blessings that have been won for you by Jesus. Knowing that you were chosen to be united to Christ even before the world was created. That the God who loves you now has always loved you and will always love you. Paul is asking the Philippians, have you experienced the encouragement that it is to be united to Christ and everything that implies? The second if, if there's any comfort from love. If you have experienced the comforting love of Jesus. If you have been comforted by the reality that God showed his love for you, then that while you're still a sinner, Christ died for you. If you have been comforted by the love of ministers like Paul, if you've been comforted by the love that they've shown to you in enduring much hardship to see that you grow spiritually and to ensure that you know the truth and are not led astray. Paul is asking, is there an appreciation for what has been done for you by Christ and his ministers? Is it a comfort to you? And the third is, if there's any participation in the Spirit, do you share in the Holy Spirit of God? Does the Holy Spirit indwell you? Has he been given to you as a guarantee and seal of your salvation? Do you share in the life-giving Spirit who works in and through you to do good works? Are the fruits of the Spirit being produced in your life? And the fourth and last if, if there's any affection and sympathy. If there has been any moving of the love of God towards you. Have you experienced compassion and mercy from God? And if so, do you in like manner have affection and sympathy and mercy towards your brothers and sisters in Christ? Having been loved by God, do you then love others? Listen, if you are a believer in Jesus, then each one of the statements that we just went through is characteristic of you to some degree. You are encouraged by Christ Jesus. You are comforted by his love. You are a partaker in the Holy Spirit, being indwelt by him. And you have affection and sympathy for others because of the affection and sympathy of God showed toward you. So what we see is that Paul was imploring the Philippians by the traits of a true believer. And here's the thing. Paul did not doubt that they were really saved. He was already well convinced of the genuineness of their faith because of the way they had treated him and taken care of him while he was with them. And also, now as a prisoner in Rome. So we shouldn't interpret his if statements in the way that we would of someone who was unsure about something. Like, imagine you go into an office hoping to speak to the manager, not knowing if he or she is there. You might say, if so-and-so is in, then I'd like to speak to them. 
There's doubt in that statement. Genuine doubt. Well, Paul wasn't wondering whether or not these things were true of the Philippians. Honestly, as he wrote to them, he was being a little facetious. He was, he was using a little humor. Like, if my wife is relaxing on the couch after a, a long day and she sees me walking by, she might say, Babe, if you love your wife, pass me the TV remote. Now she knows that I love her. And I know that she isn't even implying that I perhaps don't love her. But sometimes we talk in this humorous way with the people that we're close to. And the reason we can do this is because the idea that they don't love us is so absurd that we can joke about doubting their love for us. So really, we could really replace Paul's ifs with the word since. So since there is encouragement in Christ, since there is comfort from love, since there is participation in the Spirit, since there is affection and sympathy, then complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. If you are a believer, or rather since you are a believer, then you will do these certain things as a result. Well, now we can look at the thens in Paul's admonition. If things that we just looked at are true, then certain results will follow, like I said. If indeed we are in Christ and have all of the privileges, benefits, and blessings that come from being in Christ, then we are required to live lives worthy of Christ. In the context of Philippians 2, we see what that means. Paul says, complete my joy by being of the same mind. Boiling it all down, Paul is saying that if you are a believer, then bring me joy by being united, self-sacrificing, and humble. Bring me joy by being united, self-sacrificing, and humble. These are the results that follow after someone who is a believer in Jesus. Let's look a bit more closely at these results. Paul tells the Philippians to complete his joy. Well, how does somebody complete joy? Sounds like a strange thing to say. Doesn't that imply that joy has a start and therefore a finish? Did the Philippians start bringing him joy and now he's asking them to keep going? Well, yes, that's exactly what's going on. It's like how you could say that a mother's joy in her children is continually moving toward completion as they grow. Her joy began when she found out that she was pregnant. But her joy would not have been complete at that point, now would it? And why not? Because of course she wants the child to be born. And still, once the child is born, the joy does not end there. A good mother would want her joy to keep moving toward completion as her child grows. Moving from milk to solid food. Going from babbling to speaking intelligible words. Going from crawling to walking and so on. Onward through every milestone in life until the day the mother closes her eyes in death, full of a complete joy, knowing that her child has reached maturity and is even now producing children of their own. So hopefully you can see what Paul means by this idea of having his joy made complete by the Philippians. He thinks of the Philippians as his spiritual children. And they, having been born again, are commanded to continue to grow. Complete my joy, he says. 
stop for a moment and consider that our ministers, our pastors, our elders, who give themselves to bring us the good news and invest in us to see us grow, obviously they have a love and a care for us. So it's not hard to see how they would find joy in us when we flourish and grow in the faith. Again, it's similar to a good father and his children. Just as a good father takes care to raise his children and finds joy when they grow, a good minister of the gospel will, of necessity, take a special interest in the flock's upbringing in the faith. Think of what it is, what a joy it is rather to see your children growing. I remember once when Eliza was two, I was simply watching her eat breakfast. And that just made me so happy, just the simple act of her just eating. It was a joy to see my child being nourished. There's something special about that. Well, this is how Paul felt about his spiritual children. He found joy in seeing them being nourished by the truth and living lives worthy of the gospel of Christ, walking in obedience to Christ. These believers to whom he brought the gospel, whom he cares for, he says to them, complete my joy. Having believed the gospel and having been born again, don't stop there. Continue to grow. And don't bring me sorrow by being divided and quarreling and fighting in a way unbecoming of believers in Christ. Rather, complete my joy, growing in the knowledge of Christ. Humble yourselves and be united. This is Paul's message to the Philippian believers. This idea of bringing joy to our ministers really ought to be instructive to us. Those who, of us who sit under the, the nurture of caring ministers have a responsibility to live in a way that is worthy of the care and attention that we've been given. If ever we are tempted to take such care and attention lightly, we must remind ourselves that this care comes first and ultimately from our Heavenly Father Himself. When our ministers in the church take care of us, it is ultimately God who is taking care of us. And we should shudder to think of spurning the care of God. So recognize that God uses our pastors to care for us. We ought not to disregard their care, because to do so would be to disregard the care of God. To grieve our ministers by disunity and infighting and selfishness is ultimately to grieve the Lord that saved us. So if there is any affection and sympathy both from God and his ministers toward you and to you towards God and his ministers, then there should be a desire in you to bring joy to those who labor for your growth. You have an obligation to do this. And this affection and sympathy is not just between you and your ministers. It is also shared among your brothers and sisters in the church. Why is that? Recall that when on the night when Jesus was arrested, he prayed for his disciples that they would complete his joy by doing what? By loving one another. It's important to understand that if you are concerned with bringing joy to your master, as you should be, then loving your brethren is a must. We cannot truly love one another with Christ-like love unless we are united. Just Paul says, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Now let's move on to the second of our two headings this morning. The necessity of humility 
in Christian unity. Now, it would seem that there was some conflict in the church which prompted Paul to press them to be unified. In chapter 4, it is hinted at, as he tells two women, Yodia and Syntyche, to agree in the Lord. He wants them to be in full accord with one mind. And this is where the necessity of humility comes in. Genuine unity requires humility. Whatever the disagreement was between Yodia and Syntyche, humility would be necessary to settle it. Well, why is that? Well, often when we disagree, we become solely focused on proving our point and being right. That is, we get a sort of tunnel vision, such that all we are concerned about is winning the argument. And what often happens is that things like graciousness and humility are completely forgotten. We become so focused on this, on this is the truth and you must accept it. We become so focused on that that we completely disregard our behavior while standing for that truth. But what we need to remember is that we aren't just commanded to have our theology right, but to behave in a way that is consistent with that theology. We believers are compelled to live according to the truth of Scripture. Thus we are commanded to be humble and gracious even when we disagree. And God is so wise in teaching us this. Because when you have a group of believers who are trying to obey God as they should, in that they are really on fire for the truth and knowing God as He has revealed Himself, then sharp disagreements are sure to arise. It's inevitable. After all, if the truth really is that important, and it is, you're not simply going to shrug when you encounter something being said or done that isn't in accord with the truth. You're going to say something. So humility is necessary because it controls our passions. It tempers how we respond in conflict. It keeps us from becoming puffed up and reminds us that we are not infallible. It reminds us not to think of ourselves more highly than we ought. It reminds us that everything that we know had to be taught to us and that those with whom we disagree need to be shown the same grace as they learn. It tempers our speech and reminds us that we are not just to speak the truth, but speak the truth in love. Now I'm not saying that there aren't times when sharp rebuke isn't necessary. I'm not saying that we should shy away from speaking truth because we anticipate that things could get a little heated. What I am saying though is that pride should never be present in our disagreements. You see, pride says, I am smarter than you, and so you need to accept what I'm saying right away. No time to think about it, you just accept it because I'm right. Humility, however, says, we are all sinners saved by grace, and we must submit ourselves to the instruction and correction of God as given in Scripture. You see, pride would have you root the authority of correction in yourself. But humility roots that authority rightly in the word of God, with you being but a humble messenger of that truth. This is very important to remember as we go about our various debates in the church community. Some people shy away from having passionate discussions about religion and theological matters because they think that discussing such topics causes divisions in the church. 
frankly, some of those discussions are necessary if the church is to survive. But in reality, it is more that there's a lack of humility that is causing divisions in the church. Our zeal for the truth is a good thing, but let it be accompanied by humility. We see another way that humility bolsters unity when Paul says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. That each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Counting others as being more significant than yourself means primarily looking out for the well-being of others above your own. At all times, the Christian should be asking, how can I care for my brothers and sisters? And this has huge implications for our lives. Realize that every decision that you make, how you decide to spend your time, how you decide to spend your money, even your thoughts and prayers, all of that must be done while considering others. At all times, you must be thinking to yourself, I am but a humble, lowly servant in my master's house. The well-being of my brethren is more important than my own. How do I serve them? How can I benefit them? How can I use my time to benefit them? How can I use my money or resources to benefit them? Let me dedicate some time and thoughtful prayer on their behalf. You see, this is how we are to think when we regard others as being more important than ourselves. As Paul says, we look not only to our own interests, but to the interests of others. <coughs> and I want you to notice what happens when we don't humbly consider others as more important than ourselves. It leads to rivalry and conceit. It leads to pride in, in oneself that brings about competition in the church. It's the opposite of humility. And it has an attitude that says, my own concerns and desires are paramount in my life. My own interests come first, and nothing and no one is allowed to rival them. It's about me, me, me. And if you get in the way of what I want and what I desire, I will work my hardest to make sure that in the end, my desires are satisfied, my pleasures are sought after, and my dreams attained. I take priority in my life. If I want to be seen as the best, but I see that others view you that way, then I will work hard to get ahead of you and compete with you and take those benefits from myself. I will become your rival and try to one-up you every step of the way. There's no way I'm coming in second place. Does this sound like the attitude of a spirit-filled Christian? No. Absolutely not. Not according to Philippians 2. This kind of thinking is evil. It is self-serving and boastful. It denies that God is the one who is supreme and that He is the one who looks out for us and cares for us. This selfish, boastful attitude seeks to take care of itself and be satisfied by its own means as opposed to being cared for and satisfied by God. Listen. One of the main ways that God cares for us is by the selflessness of our brethren. You see, when you consider your brother or sister above your own needs, there should be a brother or sister who is considering you above theirs. This is what Paul is calling us to. A community 
of like-minded, humble servants, each selfishly caring for and helping each other. And unless we humble ourselves, we cannot live like this. And so this brings us to our third and final heading this morning. After all of Paul's admonishments to unity through humility, he points them to their Savior, Christ Jesus, as the prime example of humility. Jesus as the prime example of humility. So we read from verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. If you thought you had a lot to consider before, now when we come to talking about Christ and being equal to God, you know that we're going to have to spend some time thinking. So put on your thinking caps. We cannot even begin to understand the significance of Christ's humility unless we understand the doctrine of the condescension. The doctrine of the condescension. Firstly, though, let's clear up some possible confusion by defining our terms. The verb to condescend has been used by theologians to describe Jesus' act of humility in coming down from heaven to the earth and taking on human nature by becoming a man. But we should note that this is one of those words that has done a complete 180 over the years. It used to mean something good and noble, but now its meaning is taken more negatively. And I'll show you what I mean. The word has changed so drastically that it now means the opposite of what it used to in centuries past. Today, if you said that someone was condescending, most people would think that you meant to convey that that person was arrogant and prideful, right? Even seeking to embarrass or humiliate you. So, the modern day Merriam-Webster dictionary, which is frankly quite useless, <laughs> defines the word condescension as showing or characterized by a patronizing or superior attitude toward others. In other words, someone thinks that they're better than you, so they talk down to you and treat you like you don't matter. That's basically what the word has come to mean. Now it should be clear to all of us that the word condescend or condescension, when used in this way, does not at all describe the Lord Jesus Christ. Can we agree on that? Alright. But I want you to listen to the word's definition as printed in the 1828 edition of that same Webster's Dictionary. Listen, it reads, Descent from rank, dignity or just claims, relinquishment of strict right, Submission to inferiors in granting requests or performing acts which strict justice does not require, hence courtesy. Now that sounds more like it. As we look at the condescension of Jesus, try to keep that definition in mind with regard to everything you know about what Jesus has done for his people. Lowering himself in rank and honor. Denying himself what is rightfully his. 
submitting his time and energy to the needs of others when he was under no obligation to do so. Good, so with that cleared up, let's get back to why the doctrine of the condescension is so important for understanding the humility of Jesus. It's so important because of who Jesus was and then who he became. Understand that Jesus for eternity was God. Before anything was created, he was the second person of the Trinity. One with the Father and Spirit. Almighty, all-knowing, ever-present God. Infinitely beautiful, full of majesty, and worthy of all glory and honor and praise. This is who Jesus had always been. But in the condescension, Paul tells us that he made himself a servant by becoming a man. Lowly and weak. Dependent on the very earth that he created. Limited by time and space. No visible glory or majesty that anyone would be attracted to him. Just another carpenter's son from a small village that was infamous for never producing anything good. Believer, I want you to recognize the great height from which our Savior came to rescue us. Recognize how low he had to stoop to reach us. He is not merely a human king condescending to his uh, human subjects. He did not simply get up from an earthly throne in an earthly castle and take off his earthly crown and royal robes and put on peasants clothes and simply go outside to live like one of the people. No, my friends, Jesus left a heavenly throne, one more glorious than anything we can comprehend. Remember what we read about in Revelation chapter 4 a few months ago. Remember the description of the throne in heaven. The glorious rainbow around the throne and the crystal-like sea of glass under it. And before it, the seven torches of fire. Which are the seven spirits of God? I don't even know what that means. The, the flashing of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And all the while is this constant worship from these awesome and terrifying angelic beasts created after the likeness of lions and oxen and men and eagles with eyes all over their bodies and three pairs of wings who day and night never cease to say holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. This is where Jesus came from. Jesus is the eternal creator God. Yet this Jesus came to the earth in human form, condescending to we who are but dust and dirt. We whose lives are like the grass, like the flower of the field, which is when the wind blows over it, it is gone and no more remembered. Think, friends, about the great difference between God and man. Or we could say the great distance between God and man. It reminds me of that hymn. Oh, the love that drew salvation's plan. Oh, the grace that brought it down to man. Oh, the mighty gulf that God did span at Calvary. We can't fully comprehend the difference between ourselves and God. As human beings who live in time and space, we cannot fathom a being who operates outside the flow of time and space. We don't have any equations or scientific formulas to explain him. And we never will. 
God is altogether different and in a sense distant from the physical world that he made. But the mere recognition that you can't fathom God should sweeten your appreciation for what God the Son did for you in spanning that unfathomable distance. Jesus left the realm of the unfathomable to become a man who could literally stand before men and talk to them face to face. To sit with them and share a meal. He left the realm of the unfathomable to become familiar to us. To become something we could recognize and relate to. He became a man like us. Sharing in the same struggles we have and bearing the same burdens. He met us in our weakness to bear our weaknesses. Glory, glory, glory be to Jesus. Because of what he has done. Let's keep looking at the condescension. Verse 6 says that Jesus was in the form of God or the very nature of God. In the New American Standard Bible, it says... He existed in the form of God. Pastor John MacArthur notes that, and I quote, the usual Greek word for existed or being is not used here. Instead, Paul chose another term that stresses the essence of a person's nature or his continuous state or condition. Paul could have also chosen one of the two Greek words that mean form. But he chose one that specifically denotes the essential, unchanging character of something. What it is in and of itself. End quote. In other words, Paul wanted to stress that Jesus wasn't just like God or appeared God-like. No, he was God. His very essence and nature was divine. But then in the next line... The next line says that Jesus did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Now, is this saying that Jesus let go of his equality with God and thus stopped being God? No. God cannot stop being God. Jesus cannot stop being God. What Paul is saying is that Jesus, though he was God, did not seek to hold on to that which he already possessed and was rightfully his, namely, the rights that come with being equal to God. Jesus did not relinquish his divine nature. That is not possible. Rather, he relinquished his rights. Do you realize that when Jesus was a boy, he had to obey the commands of his earthly father and mother? He also had to obey the lawful commands of the rulers of Israel, corrupt as they were. Jesus, while he was on the earth, had to take orders from mere men. You understand that? Yet, all that time, being God, he had the right to command them. But he let those rights go for a time in order to be a servant for our sake. He willingly put aside his rights to come to our rescue even though he was under no obligation to do so. And moving on to verse 7, we read, But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Now what does it mean to say that Jesus emptied himself? 
Well, right away, let's be clear that this does not mean that Jesus stopped being divine. It does not mean that Jesus stopped being God. Again, that is impossible. Jesus, who is the second person of the Trinity, experienced no change to his nature as eternal, all-knowing, all-powerful, ever-present God. Rather, Scripture tells us that his emptying of himself had to do with him taking on the form of a servant. Or put another way, taking on the nature of a man. Now we're going to explore this more in a few minutes, but first... I want to make sure that there is no confusion regarding Jesus taking on a second nature. Orthodox Christianity affirms that Jesus, instead of only having one nature, that is the divine nature, now has two natures since the incarnation when he came to live on earth. He has the divine nature, and now since coming to earth, he also has the human nature. Now the reality of Christ's two natures is a mystery that we cannot fully grasp. And thus it can be very difficult to wrap our heads around it or to even explain it accurately. But we must try if we are to think rightly about Jesus and avoid creating idols in our minds, false Jesuses. We must think accurately and correctly about who Jesus is revealed to be in Scripture. So let me reiterate. Jesus did not stop being divine in the Incarnation. Rather, Paul says, he emptied himself, not by subtracting or taking away from his divine nature, but actually by assuming or taking on a second nature. That is, the human nature or the nature of a servant. You with me so far? Now, some people think that the human nature was added to the divine nature in a simple, in a similar way to how a baker would add flour to water and make dough. But that is incorrect. The problem with thinking about the incarnation in this way is that such an act would change the nature of both the water and the flour, such that they are no longer the same as they were before. The flour would no longer be purely flour, since it is now chemically bonded to the water, and the water would no longer be purely water, since it is now chemically bonded to the flour. So when we apply this logic to the case of Jesus, it would mean that his divine nature would be different from what it was originally, because it would now be mixed or combined with the human nature. You see the problem? This is a big problem because the divine nature does not change. God is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. God does not grow or shrink. He does not learn or forget. He does not evolve over time. He stays the same. So in our understanding of Jesus taking on the human nature, along with the divine nature that he already had, we must be careful not to mix the two natures. If you're still confused, let me try another analogy that hopefully might be more helpful. If we think of Jesus' divine nature as a box, and his human nature as a smaller box, it would be wrong to think that at the moment when Jesus was conceived in his mother's womb, the smaller box containing Jesus' human nature was picked up and placed inside the bigger box of Jesus' divine nature. If that had been the case, it would now mean that Jesus' divine nature had changed 
since the human nature is now part of it when it was not before. It is now inside the divine box when it wasn't there before. So that is not what theologians mean when they say that Jesus took on or added to himself a new nature. Rather, it is more like Jesus' divine nature is a box and his human nature is another box side by side. The contents, the contents of either box do not mix. Jesus' divine nature is truly and purely divine and his human nature is truly and purely human. And neither is it a, a half and half mix where you cut the boxes in half and take them and glue them together. That's not what's going on here. Jesus isn't part God and part man. He was fully God and fully man. To further make the point to you, there are two words that I think would be very helpful here. We have the word distinct and the word separate. We often use these words interchangeably, but they are very different. For example, my arm is not separate from my torso, and I am very thankful for that. Rather, my arm is distinct from my torso. The two are together, but you can distinguish between the two. Likewise, to say that Jesus' two natures are separate would be incorrect. They are present together in one person. The Jesus of Nazareth that we worship, that we see in scripture, has two natures, divine and human. And the two are not separate. Since the incarnation, they are both present in the person of Jesus. Jesus is both God and man. That is who Jesus is. And remember our analogy. You can't take those two boxes and move them from, from next to one another. They are not separate, but together in one person. But they are distinct. You can distinguish between the two. Divinity is not humanity, and humanity is not divinity. To use the analogy again, you can point to one box and identify it definitely as the divine box, and point to another box and identify it definitely as the human box. For even more help, listen to what the 1689 Baptist Confession of Faith affirms about the condescension of Jesus. It reads, listen, two whole, perfect, and distinct natures were inseparably joined together in one person without conversion, composition, or confusion. Which person is very God and very man, yet one Christ, the only mediator between God and man, end quote. So all of this to say that Jesus editing himself does not mean that he stopped being God or that he became less divine than he was before. Rather, he veiled or hid his divine glory and took on a new nature, one which is defined by comparative weakness and lowliness of status. Verse 7 says, But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Focus on that part. By taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus, the majestic and awesome creator who dwells in unapproachable light, became like us. Before, in eternity, Christ's glory shone with such radiance that even the angels shielded their eyes. But then, in a state of humiliation in the condescension, 
when he was here on earth, he didn't even stand up in a crowd. If you stood next to Jesus 2,000 years ago in a market in Galilee, you wouldn't know there was anything special about him. He was in the form of a servant, and his glory was veiled. You ever wondered why Judas had to identify Jesus? It's because he didn't stand out. He could have been that guy or that guy or that guy. He had to be identified. But listen, Christ's humiliation went beyond his form or appearance. It's more than that. Indeed, his humiliation was manifest even in his actions. He became obedient even to the point of death on a cross. Think about that. Jesus was the sovereign ruler of all creation. The one who has in himself the right to command even the very elements and laws of physics. But he emptied himself and became a servant. He became a man. Men are created to be subject to God and they have an obligation to obey. So when Jesus took the form of a servant, born under the law, he made himself subject to the law's demands. Imagine that. He was the lawgiver, and now he is subject to the law. And not only that, but in becoming like us, he made himself subject to the effects of the curse. He got weary. He got hungry. He got thirsty. He felt the pain of thorns. The heat of the sun beat upon him during the day, and the cold bit at him by night. Listen, Jesus suffered while in this state of humiliation. And consider this also. And I think this is my one. His sufferings were not only physical, but emotional and mental as well. What do I mean? Well, how does it affect you when you have to deal with the sin of others? When someone hurts you emotionally or causes you mental anguish. You feel sorrow or perhaps anger or a mix of a bunch of other emotions. And you experience thoughts that bother you and cause you some degree of mental turmoil. Well, your capacity to feel all of these things is proportional to your moral quality. If you are someone who greatly values loyalty and friendship and has a relatively strong moral center regarding loyalty, you will be more deeply cut by the betrayal of a friend, right? Now think of Jesus. What was his moral quality? What was his capacity for feelings of sorrow? Friends, Jesus was morally perfect. He had a perfect sense of righteousness and holiness. What this means is that Jesus experienced the pain and offense of sin so much more deeply than we do. And he had to live among sinners for 30 years seeing them hurt one another, hurt the ones he loves, and hurt him. Even seeing those he loves hurt others of those he loves. You think Jesus had a rough time here on earth? He is literally, literally referred to as a man of sorrows. Why do you think that is? Because he had to deal with us. Think of passages like Matthew 17, 17. Oh, faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Jesus was far more bothered by the sinful faithlessness of the people around him than perhaps we thought. 
because he was morally pure to a degree that we cannot even fathom. He was perfect. And all of these things he willingly subjected himself to. Furthermore, Jesus made himself obedient to the Father in all things. Christ set aside his own authority. He said, not my will be done, but my Father's will. Indeed, Jesus became obedient even to a humiliating death. The scriptures tell us, and all the Jews knew this, that from Galatians 3.13, cursed is anyone who is hanged on a tree. You might die in one way or this way or another way, but for those who were, who were hanged on a tree, the Jews looked at that and said, that's a, that's, a different kind of, that's a different kind of thing. You're cursed if you're hanged on a tree. But listen, Christ went in willing obedience to that wooden cross. This was another cause for his deep, deep sorrows while here on earth. For his entire earthly life, Jesus knew his mission. He knew that he was to be the ultimate sacrifice for sin. That he was the ultimate sacrificial lamb. He knew that he was going to have to be made a detestable and vile thing. An object upon whom all of the filth and sin of the elect would be placed. And that he would be forsaken by the Father and crushed by the Father. Several times we see in scripture, Jesus troubled, visibly troubled when considering what he was going to have to do on the cross. You see him praying in great anguish in the garden on the night when he was betrayed. Drops of sweat like blood. Father, take this cup from me. Do you think it was the beatings and the nails that bothered Jesus so much? Listen, men and women throughout history have suffered worse death than crucifixion. And they have done it with less emotional anguish beforehand. So no, it wasn't the nails that Jesus was troubled by. It wasn't the whips, it wasn't the crown of thorns. That's not what bothered him. He was troubled by the reality that he, a lover of righteousness and holiness and purity, would have to take upon himself the evil grime and muck of sinners and then face down the wrath of an eternal God. The fierce wrath of the Father. And he would have to bear in his soul for three dark hours eternities of hellish, brutal punishment for billions upon billions of believers. This is why our Savior is described as a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. You think you have stress in your life? Nonetheless, Jesus walked through life obeying his Father all the way to the cross. And all of this so that he could live the life that we could not live because of our sin. And die the death that we deserve to die because of our sin. All of this he did not for himself because he had no sin. But all of this he did for us. Can you see now how Christ's humility and condescension relate to Paul's admonition to the Philippians to be humble. And count others as more valuable than themselves. It is because Christ counted his people as more important than himself. He did not shirk from the responsibility of the cross in light of us, saving us. Thus he endured great suffering for our sake, in service to us. 
If you want to see the perfect example of setting aside one's own self-interest in service to others, look no further than Christ Jesus. Jesus endured the humiliation and pain of the condescension to save you. To save all of us who believe. He didn't cling to that which was rightfully his. To his rights as one equal with God. He wasn't thinking of himself when he came to earth. He was setting an example to which Paul points us. Think of others as more important than yourselves. Don't stand on your rights, but be willing to give them up for the sake of others. What the Apostle Paul has been explaining to us in these verses in Philippians, we also see in the Gospel of John, portrayed for us with the account of washing the disciples' feet in the upper room. What you will notice when you consider these two portions of Scripture is that they actually mirror each other. Both display the humble condescension of Jesus in service to his people. Both display three key aspects of humility. The relinquishing of rights, the lowering of oneself in rank or status, and acts of service to others. Let's briefly read John 13, 3 to 5. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God, and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments, taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet. Notice the parallels. In verse 6 of Philippians chapter 2, we learn that although Jesus was divine and equal to the Father and the Holy Spirit, he did not count equality with them a thing to be grasped. He willingly lowered himself to the rank of a servant. And in John 13, verse 3, we see Jesus knowing that he came from God and was going back to him. That is to say, he knew his rights. He knew his equality with God as the one who had come from the glory of God and was going back to the glory of God, back to that same glory. Yet he was about to perform a very lowly and humble act by washing the feet of those who are at an even lesser rank than he. Despite his status as God, he set aside his rights. And then in verse 7 of Philippians chapter 2, we learn that Jesus emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant. He lowered himself from the status of ruler to the status of servant. He laid aside his status as one who commands to become one who obeys. And this mirrors John 13, where Jesus laid aside his outer garments. This is significant because in doing so, he assumed a less dignified position than his disciples. I want you to imagine it. If you could have walked in on them, you would have found all of the disciples appropriately dressed for supper, reclining at table, but then there's this one guy with his outer garments off, with a towel wrapped around his waist, on his knees, washing their dirty, soiled feet. Now you, seeing this, might immediately assume that he was the servant. That rather than an honored guest, the honored guest at the feast, he is just a help. And that's the point. Even Peter was astounded by this humility. No, Lord, you shall never wash my feet, he says. But our Lord humbly lowered himself in rank and status and did just that. And lastly, notice the parallel between Philippians 2, verse 8, and John 13, verse 5. In both, we see that the humility of Jesus led him to serve his people. In John, we learn that Jesus washed his disciples' feet with water from a basin. And listen, in Philippians... We learn that the humility of Jesus led him to the cross where he washed away their sins with his own blood. 
and not their sins only, but the sins of all who would believe. Yours and mine, if we believe. He served us in the most significant way imaginable. And thus Jesus' words to his disciples after he had washed their feet are also recorded for us. He says, if I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do just as I have done for you. And years later, the Apostle Paul would write to the Philippians echoing the same admonition. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Humble yourself in service to others. Finally, brothers, after hearing of the great humility of Jesus, we are meant to be moved to follow his example. However, living up such selfless humility is indeed a daunting prospect. But be encouraged. We have not been left to accomplish this on our own. Remember that the humility of Jesus was in service to his people. Remember that the purpose for him accepting the state of, humili of humiliation was for us. Remember what Jesus accomplished for us. We have been made new in Christ. Given new hearts to love God and eyes to see his goodness. We have been given a special love for those who are in the body of Christ, our family. Through the work of Jesus, the Holy Spirit has been given to us, working in us for his glory. Brothers and sisters, Jesus has not only left us an example to follow in his various acts of humility, but by his very death, he has actually made our own humility before God and man possible. Prior to his sacrifice, we could do nothing but sin. But because of his death, because of the sending of the Holy Spirit and dwelling us and working through us, we are able to follow him. So you don't need to be downtrodden when you think about this task of loving your brethren, even though they could be difficult and doing all these things, because you have the help of the Holy Spirit because of what Jesus did for you. So be humble like Christ. Have a heart that sees no shame in relinquishing your rights and think of others as more significant than yourself. Look after their interests above your own. And as you look upon Christ in the scriptures, seeing the example that he has left to us and marveling at his deeds, be encouraged that he has made it possible for you too to take up your own cross, denying yourself and humbly following him in service to your brethren.